0: I'm so glad you're here. We are so glad you're here. Uh, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at The Vine, and uh, if you're joining us online right now, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, welcome to The Vine. If you're joining us in this room, uh, we're packed in this room. If you're joining us in the overflow outside, we are also so grateful uh, that you're with us in the overflow. Um, man, what, what a joy it is to gather together. and something that we should never take for granted, the beauty and the reality of gathering together. In the uh, the autumn of 1996, in the middle of a pretty ordinary week, and at the end of a very mundane day, something happened that completely changed the trajectory of my life. I had just graduated from university uh, from the UK, and I was back in Hong Kong, and I was young, I was single, I was ready to take on the world. I'd just been given a job, I just had my first job. I was hired by a local recruitment company. I remember getting my first paycheck and thinking I was a millionaire. (laughs) And then I realized that I wasn't because I was living at home with my parents because I couldn't afford to live anywhere else. My parents lived in this small little makeshift apartment in a local NGO here called Mother's Choice, an NGO that looks after orphans in our city. And that helps girls that are in crises and the pregnancies of of crisis underage. And and we were brought into this moment where we were living with them. My father was working at Mother's Choice, and they gave us this little makeshift apartment in one of their buildings, and um, it was a really interesting place to live. It was like living with with 100 orphans around you all the time. It was always a pretty exciting thing. And my apartment uh, had, unusually, two front doors to it. There was the main front door that when you entered into that front door, you would enter into the living room of our apartment. But there was a smaller side door that was also like a front door. And if you were to enter into that one, you would go into a smaller room and then there'd be some stairs that would go up to my bedroom. And then to the end of that room, there was a corridor that sneaked around the outskirts of the apartment and then came back in at the place of the kitchen. It was kind of bizarre that it was set up that way but it just was and so every day after work I would come home and I would go through the smaller second door I would dump my bag whatever in my room I would then go on that little corridor on the outside of our apartment all the way around and then I would enter into the kitchen I would open the fridge I would grab a beer uh, and then I would wonder what is it that I was going to eat that night well on this particular day I'd had a very hard day at work. It was one of those things, you know, when you're uh, like the most junior person in the company, you get like all the bad work, right? You get all the dumped work on you. So I had this terrible day. I was doing all these spreadsheets. It was super boring. Uh, I didn't get done all the things I needed to do. I realized I had to take the spreadsheets home with me. I was exhausted at the end of the day. I actually got home later than normal. I went into that little side door, went up to my bedroom, dumped my bag, got into that corridor, walked around the outside of our apartment into the kitchen. I opened the fridge, I grabbed a beer, and I was just about to open it when I heard a sound. It was a sound that I had never heard before, like that particular sound. It was the sound of a woman's voice. But it was a woman's voice that I did not recognize. And I realized it was coming from my living room that my parents had a guest over, which was unexpected and they had not told me about. And the thing that grabbed my attention straight away was that this voice, I mean, if you could have heard this voice, I had never heard anything more beautiful in my life. (laughs) It was like it floated to me on clouds to my ears. Not only was I drawn by the sound but I was also drawn in curiosity. The thing about the sound and the voice was, although it was beautiful, I couldn't understand a word that this person was saying because they had a really heavy accent. They were from a country that I could not place, and they were speaking English, but I could not understand. (laughs) And I was so drawn to this And I remember holding this beer in my hand. I hadn't opened at that point. I was literally frozen still. And I had a decision to make. Something extraordinary had just entered into my life. And I remember turning really slowly and walking very quietly to the edge of our living room and pouring around the door so I could see into the room. What I saw was the most beautiful girl that has ever been created. She was around about my age. She was blonde. She was beautiful. And she was from New Zealand. Yes. I had no idea what she was talking about. But she looked just like this. And literally, I'm not kidding, I have not done anything yet. I step into the living room, holding my beer can, mesmerized by this woman. And as I step in, I hear the audible voice of God. Andrew, remove your shoes, for the ground you're standing on is holy ground. Are you with me, church? And I walked in and said hello to the woman who had become my wife. Yes. Something extraordinary had broken into my very ordinary and completely changed my life from that point. And as we continue our story in Exodus, we're at a moment where we meet Moses in his most mundane and his most ordinary, a man who for 40 years has been living in a a desert called Midian, who's been looking after the sheep of his father-in-law, who has fled from his status and who he was in Egypt and was now desperately trying to search for the person that he was going to become in his life. And in his very mundane and his very ordinary, God shows up with the extraordinary. God breaks into his mundane and invites him to make a choice. If you will, it was Moses' beer-in-the-hand-fridge moment. Is he going to respond to this thing that has suddenly, rudely, if you will, interrupted his life? Or would he choose to just carry on in the same old, same old as things have always been. And as you're gathered in this moment, whether in this room or online, I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to bring you to that place this morning. If you've been here at the Vine over the last five weeks, we've been journeying in the story of Exodus, and today you come to a place of decision. Today, God is going to invade your ordinary with his extraordinary. And you will have a choice, just like Moses did. Will you decide... To respond? Or will you decide to remain in the comfort of what you have always known? You see, when the Lord wants to bring transformation in our lives, it is always to come and change something that's going to require courage and faith. And if you're going to continue in your Exodus journey, this is the moment where God is going to call upon you for courage. And for faith. I want to read this to you because this is how Moses, who's writing Exodus, writes of his own story and narrative. This is Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father in law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Let's just stop there. The first thing he says is he's trying to give you a sense of the geography of this moment. Before the extraordinary enters into his ordinary, he gives you a description of his ordinary. He's a shepherd looking after sheep. He's so humble, he's so poor, that he doesn't own the sheep himself. They're the sheep of his father-in-law, Jethro. He's gone from being a prince of Egypt in a palace to not even be able to afford his own animals. And there he says, I am in a place, notice this, he says, Horeb, the mountain of God. He gives us a glimpse right at the start of the story of where everything in Exodus is about to go. Because although he doesn't explain it here, we come to learn later that Mount Horeb is the same mountain as Mount Sinai where God will meet Israel and give Moses the Ten Commandments. It's the same place. And it's likely that Moses had come to this mountain many times as he's grazing the sheep of, his, uh, of the shepherd that he's looking after. And he's probably circled around this mountain many times. It's his ordinary, but God's about to step in and do something extraordinary. And he goes on to tell us right here, I now call this the mountain of God. We, as a people, understand this as the mountain of God. But before I brought you out of slavery to that mountain, God met me on that mountain first. And he, he says this Horeb. Horeb uh, meant glowing or heat. It, it, it gives you a little sense of what's about to happen next in the narrative. But Mount Sinai, that it comes to be called, Sinai is sounds in the Hebrew like the word hatred. And that's how the Israelites felt as they came out of their slavery in Egypt. And Egypt was still pursuing them. They felt like they were a hated group of people. And God met them in that place and began to restore their identity but before the identity of Israel was restored Moses had to first have his identity restored so god comes and meets him on mount horror. Now, I want to give you just really quickly a sense of the geography of where this is all happening. In week one, I showed you this uh, modern-day map of of Egypt. Obviously, it doesn't contain the whole of Egypt. It carries on below the bottom of the screen there. Um, But this is the important area. This is area in the Bible is called Goshen. It's roughly where the Israelites were camped when they were enslaved uh, by Egypt. Uh, This, of course, is what's known as the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, Modern-day Israel comes all the way down here. But in those days, uh, this Land here uh, was uh, not uh, Canaan, it wasn't the modern day Israel, that was more up here. Uh, and then, of course, you've got Saudi Arabia here, modern day Jordan here. Now the mountain of Horeb is is really debated by scholars as to exactly its location. There are really two main schools of thought. You remember in week two of this series, I told you that there's very little archaeological evidence in Egypt that actually Israel was ever in the land, let alone that the exodus actually happened. And because there's a lack of archaeological evidence, uh, people have debated exactly where all of this stuff took place. Now, Two schools of thought, one that's a a bit of a more modern understanding, and one that's more traditional. In the modern understanding, the idea is that Mount Sinai is actually over here in modern day Saudi Arabia. And when, uh, uh, when Moses fled, he would have fled across the Sinai Peninsula, he would have crossed over the Red Sea here, and then he would have found his new family, Jethro and the shepherd and everything, over here in Midian. Uh, Paul, actually in the New Testament, refers to Mount Sinai as being in Arabia. That's the word in the New Testament that we have. Um, and so scholars believe that this is here. Now, interestingly, there is quite a lot of archaeological evidence for uh, some of the things that are explained in the Exodus in this area. And Mount Sinai, roughly here, is actually a mountain in Saudi Arabia that is burnt at the top of it. Nobody knows how that mountain got burnt. Uh, And so, again, people believe that this may actually be the place. Now, if that is the case, Uh, Israel would have come out here. They would have come down along here. They would have crossed the Red Sea either at the bottom here or somewhere in the middle here. And then they would gathered at Mount Sinai here. And then later on after receiving the law they would have come up here. This is where they would send the the spies into the promised land. They come back with a bad report. So they wander for 40 years in the desert. uh, And then eventually they get released to go into the promised land here. That's a modern understanding of what may have happened. However, there's a traditional view that has been accepted by scholarship over many years. Uh, that one places Sinai right here in the heart of Egypt, in the Sinai Peninsula. In fact, uh, if you were to search on Google Mount Sinai, it's, largely, it's likely that you'll be drawn to this place right here. There's a monastery uh, right at the foothills here. Uh, that monastery is called St. Catherine's. It was founded in the 4th century. So Christians, right at the early beginning of our faith... Uh, some 1700 years ago decided and believed that this was actually where mount sinai is located so that is the place in egypt where you can go to to this day so in this way uh, moses would have come down midian would have been in this area and then mount horeb sinai here when the israelites were released from their slavery they would have come down here they would have crossed the red sea here and then they would have met god here and then again they would have come up here sent the promised uh, spies in Done their 40 years of wandering around here and then finally up and in at the end of the Exodus. Helpful? Yeah. Now, which one do I believe? Well, I actually think that it's more likely that Sinai is probably in Saudi Arabia than it actually is in Egypt. And there's a bunch of different reasons for that, which I don't have time to get into today. But we, for this series, we have filmed this particular route for you. Uh, And we are basing this series uh, out of Mount Sinai, uh, right here in the Egyptian peninsula. Why? Because it's a lot easier to film here than it is to film here. Okay? (laughs) And also... The whole point of this series is not to give you like a documentary of exactly where uh, Israel went. The point of this series is to help you to understand the events of the Exodus. And those events can be told beautifully by following this here and by visiting Mount Sinai right here. And it's that event that I want to bring you to now. Is that helpful? All right. In verse 2 and 3, it says this. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him, Moses, in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'm going to go over and see this strange sight why the bush does not burn up. This is the moment where God brings an extraordinary interruption into Moses' very ordinary and mundane life. God's not finished with Moses. There's much. For Moses to do. Moses is totally unaware at this point of what is about to be ahead of him, and God brings a disruption into his life through this incredible sight of a burning bush. Now, God has revealed himself to humanity many times before he now reveals himself to Moses, and he's revealed himself quite directly to humanity before, for example, with the call of Abraham. So the first question we should have is why does he do it in a random burning bush? Well, it's fascinating because fire. In Egyptian mythology, it meant two things. It meant something that destroys in order to purify. Moses, having been raised in Egyptian mythology, having been taught for years in the court of Pharaoh, would have known and understood deeply what the idea and the symbol of fire was all about. In Egyptian gods, they, they believe that if they burnt something, they burnt it up completely, they destroyed it in order for it to be a sacrifice to the gods. So Moses, going about his normal, ordinary, everyday, mundane life, he looks over and he sees a bush on fire. That in in and of itself, not a big deal. But he describes something to us here. He says, there was a bush that was on fire, but it did not burn up. That's a change for Moses in his mythology and his spirituality and how he understands the symbol of fire. This fire is burning a bush, but it's not burning up the bush. It's not consuming the bush. And it's that that causes him to stop in his tracks. This is his beer fridge moment. Like me that day, I heard a sound. It was a woman's voice, but it was something in that voice that was different for me. There's something in this fire that's different and he names it for us. This fire should have consumed it, but it didn't. What Moses is pointing out is something very important at this point in the narrative. He's pointing out the beauty and the power of God's grace. He's saying our God is different. Our God can burn something and not consume it. Our God can bring his presence to something, and it's not completely wiped out. It's not completely destroyed. We don't have to be completely destroyed to be purified by God. There's a new narrative that's beginning to work its way into Scripture here, and he says this is an incredible sight. It's burning, but it does not burn up. This would become a symbol for Israel of themselves. The rabbinic teachings often speak of Israel as a burning bush. If there's a nation that has suffered more than Israel over the years, I challenge you to name one. Israel has suffered so much, and yet they are still sustained. That is the grace of God. They are a burning bush. In the same way, Jesus on the cross is a burning bush. He he took on the sin of all of humanity, all of our sin on his shoulders and the wages of sin is death and the sin should have wiped him out forever and yet God in his sustaining grace reaches in, redeems and renews, resurrects Christ three days later. The cross is a burning bush. The church today is a burning bush. You are a burning bush Because all of our sin, all of our brokenness should have consumed us. And yet by God's grace, we are here. And yet by God's grace, his church is still growing. And yet by God's grace, even over two and a half thousand years, no matter how much persecution, no matter what society might say, no matter how this thing might be tried to be contained, it is growing, it is thriving. The church is alive in the city of Hong Kong by the grace of God. Are you with me? Here's something you need to know right at this point of the narrative because this is so important. It is only ever God who is able to sustain us through the things in life that seek to destroy us. Only God. And it is by His grace that we are saved. Paul would write to the church, And he would say this, I am persecuted, but I'm not overwhelmed. I am knocked down, but I will rise up again. He says, there is a sustaining grace on me. And some of you in this room, you need to understand that you're facing some hard time. There's something going on. But if you're a child of God, you will not burn up. The hand of his grace is on you. And as a burning bush, doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but God will sustain us and renew us. Amen. Now, this burning bush, really interestingly for Moses, he sees all this, and then he says something. He says, it's a strange sight. It's a strange sight because, because I, I am not expecting it to be this way. And he decides, it says here, to go over to the bush. This is fascinating. He actually decides to go over to actually see the bush. Now, the word in Hebrew here actually suggests this, to change his course, to set a new direction. That's what the word in Hebrew means. So I want you to see what's happening here, what Moses himself is trying to explain to you. He's walking a normal path. He's doing what he always does in his ordinary, and God sets a burning bush over in the distance somewhere. Now think about that for a moment. If God had really wanted to get Moses' attention, why didn't he put a burning bush right in front of his current path? Why didn't he put it right there in front of him so that he couldn't do anything but actually engage with God? Instead, God sets a burning bush over in the distance somewhere and essentially goes, will you come? Will you see? Will you respond? The burning bush is an invitation to respond. It is God asking Moses whether he will take responsibility For realizing that he needs healing. It is a beautiful, extraordinary gift of God to say to Moses, would you be willing to change your path? Would you allow yourself to be interrupted? Are you willing to step out of the ordinary so that you can come and encounter my extraordinary? And Moses himself says, I'm going to go over, I'm going to change my path to understand what is happening here. And the reality for so many of us as Christians, and I'm like this too, is that God is burning bushes around us all the time and we just keep walking on the path that we're on. And and God is showing up and welcoming us, inviting us to a deeper place of healing. He's showing up and welcoming us to deal with some of the sin in our lives. But we have to make the choice to turn, the choice to to place ourselves in a position where we can commune with him, engage with him. We have to see the burning bush and then go over to it. And yet fear keeps us locked on the path that we always know. There's, There's risk and danger of the unknown when we come off of our normal, everyday path and head towards that bush. It takes courage to decide that you're going to change your path. It takes faith to believe that what over there, despite how scary it might seem, might actually be the thing that could truly set you free. And out of this whole part of the scripture, what God is, I think, asking Moses, and I think what he's asking us is something deeply profound. Will you have the courage, the courage to embrace uncertainty, to go over and discover new paths? Or will you choose to submit yourself to your own comfort and carry on just like it always has been? Will you agree? Will you take the risk, the courage to, to actually break your path and head over towards what God is doing over here and discover new things with him? Or will you stay submitted to your current comfort and just follow on, carry on like it's always been? At this point in our Exodus journey, that's the decision that's before you. You can just carry on as things have always been. And God will continue to pursue you with burning bushes. But very rarely are they placed right in front of you. More often than not, they're placed around you so that you take the first step towards him. Are you with me? Now, I want you to see what happens when Moses does that. It's really quite beautiful Verse 4, when I looked and saw that he had gone over to look, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, you know you're in trouble when God says your name twice. This happens with me and my wife. If she says Andrew once, I'm okay. Andrew twice, not good. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. What an incredibly profound and beautiful moment. God has set up an extraordinary bush in such a place where Moses has to decide to turn and go towards it. But as he goes towards it, God then stops him. But I want you to notice something. God only calls to him after he sees that Moses is coming towards him. Come on, church. God God only calls to him once he sees that Moses has made that decision, has said, I'm gonna give this a go. I'm gonna go over and investigate. I wanna know more about this bush that's burning and doesn't burn up. And, and it's in that step of faith that Moses takes that God begins to speak. Hey, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses says. And he says these most famous words in the Old Testament. Take off your sandals for the ground that you're standing on. It's holy ground. And the question we need to wrestle with is, why does he have to do this? Why does Moses need to remove those sandals? What is it about this moment? What is it about this extraordinary encounter at a bush? What is it about God's presence that is inviting Moses to remove his sandals? What is it about the holiness of God in this part of the story that is so critical for everything that's about to happen next? Well, to help you to understand that, we took some time on our trip around Egypt to actually go to St. Catherine's Monastery that's at the foothills of Mount Sinai. And when we were there, The monks introduced us to something that truly is profound. And I want to now introduce you to it. It's the actual burning bush. Let's take a look. Right in the heart of the Sinai Peninsula, a triangular wedge of some 24,000 square miles in Egypt that forms a bridge between Asia and Africa, you will find St. Catherine's Monastery. Built between 548 and 565, this Greek Orthodox monastery sits at the foot of Mount Sinai, the traditional site where Christians believe God first appeared to Moses and where the Ten Commandments were given. The monastery is named after Catherine of Alexandria, and tradition has it that after being martyred in the early 4th century at the mere age of 18, her remains were carried by angels and laid in the mountains of this area. The monastery itself is the oldest continuously inhabited Christian monastery in the world, with a history that can be traced back over 17 centuries. As we will see, it is the home of the oldest continually operated library in the world, to an order of monks that has never been broken since the beginning, and to a chapel that has never fully been destroyed in all of its history. And it is also home to something else unique, unparalleled, and also present since the very beginning of the Exodus story itself, Something which, at first glance, you might not think is very special at all. This is traditionally believed to be Moses' burning bush. The actual bush. Now the bush itself is a type of bramble known as Rubus Sanctus, and it's found across Asia and parts of Europe. And it's famous for its ability to survive and thrive for thousands of years in the harshest environments possible. And what fascinates me about this bush is that it's actually not found in any other part of Egypt except right here at the foothills of Mount Sinai. Now tradition has it that when the first monks appeared here to actually establish the monastery, they were so drawn to this bush that they created the monastery around it in order to preserve it in its natural environment. So think about this for a sec. This bush is incredibly rare. It's also able to survive for thousands of years. And scientists have dated this exact bush to the time of Moses, all of which has convinced the monks here that this really is the burning bush. And if that is true, then the ground I'm standing on right now, well, it's holy ground. The story in our scriptures is familiar to us. Moses is tending his sheep in the desert when he encounters a burning bush and is amazed that it was burning and not yet consumed, and so he walks over to it in order to investigate. As he approaches, God calls out to him from the bush and commands him to remove his sandals as the ground that he was standing on was holy ground. The reason for the need for Moses to remove his sandals has been much discussed in Christian history. The traditional view, accepted by the monks here, revolves around the idea that sandals in those days were made of dead animal skin, and therefore filled with impurities. And because nothing impure or unholy could ever go into God's presence, Moses had to do his part in removing those impurities before he could meet with the holiness of God. Monks, priests, and pastors alike have preached this message ever since and use this moment of the removing of Moses' sandals to speak metaphorically of all of our need to ensure that we do our best to remove our own impurities as we seek to live out a life of holiness to God. Metaphor has a rich history in Christian tradition and this is seen perhaps no more so than right here in the museum at St. Catharines, just a stone throw away from the burning bush. Inside are some beautiful pieces of Greek Orthodox art and not surprisingly, a number of them are about the burning bush. Let me take you inside. this piece in particular fascinates me, particularly as we are thinking about metaphor in the tradition of the burning bush. This is a picture of Mary, the mother of Jesus, holding Jesus in her arms. But what's really interesting is that she's covered in flames. Now this is an important metaphor in the Greek Orthodox tradition. They think of Mary as like a burning bush, Uh, thinking about how the Holy Spirit came upon Mary as a virgin, enabling her to conceive Jesus. And the Spirit came upon her, but didn't consume her, didn't overwhelm her. Well, in that way, she is like a burning bush. And for those in the Greek Orthodox Church, they approach Mary like they might approach a burning bush, thinking that in drawing close to her they actually will draw closer to the holiness of God so whether through metaphor or reality the story of Moses at the burning bush reminds us to reflect deeply on the holiness of God and the sobering reality of our own impurities in comparison and that's an important lesson But it's actually not the only lesson we should be drawing from this narrative. In fact, there's another reason why I think God called Moses to remove his sandals on that day. And it's a reason that opens up for us a whole brand new way of thinking about Scripture. And to understand that, I want to actually open up the breadth of Scripture to you now. Beautiful monastery, right? You can visit it. They have accommodation there. It's amazing. I can highly recommend it. But I want to show you now what I actually think is happening right here in this burning bush moment and why God asked Moses to remove his sandals. And I think it has something to do with impurities, but it has something to do with something much more important. I've been saying to you every week of this uh, series that actually when Moses presents the story of Exodus, he's doing it in the backdrop of Genesis, another book that he wrote to explain God's creation of all things. Now, we see at the end point of chapter two of Genesis, Moses describe Adam and Eve in a very specific way. He says that they are naked and unashamed. And this is absolutely a, an unashamed. This is absolutely a beautiful statement not just of Adam and Eve, but of all of humanity. And and the idea of being naked and unashamed is not actually just speaking about their physicality, but the Hebrew words actually speak much bigger than that, much broader than that. It speaks about their mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, their uh, relationship with God, as well as their relationship with one another. The word naked in particular is actually a Hebrew word, which is this very important word, aramin. Now, aramin literally means this. It means to be laid bare. It means to be open. And importantly, nothing hidden. This is the idea that this particular... I'm going to run out of space again. I did that in the last service as well. It's really annoying. Anyway, there you go. To be laid bare, to be open, nothing hidden. This is the idea of what it is to be Aramin. So it's not just talking about their physical stature with each other, though that was true, but it's also talking about this deeper meaning that humanity has this nature that's been created by by God to be adamant, to be open, to be fully laid bare, no hiddenness, no secrets, no sin. Sin has not entered the picture yet, and so the way in which we've been created is to be naked and ashamed with one another, yes, but most importantly with God. This is why you see the picture in Genesis 1 and 2 of God walking in the garden in the coolness of the night, and Adam and Eve communing with God in a way that was fully laid bare, fully open, nothing to hide. Are you following so far? Now, the word aramin is the last Hebrew word of chapter 2 in Genesis. The first Hebrew word in chapter 3 is uh, another word, and it is the word that literally means crafty crafty or shrewd, depending on your English translation, this is the word that is actually used to describe Satan. So the snake in the garden was more crafty or shrewd than any of the other animals in the garden. That word, crafty and shrewd, is the Hebrew word aram, which those of you who are quick on your feet will realize is very similar to the word aramin. Are you with me? Now, aram actually means this. It means to be closed, it means to be hidden, and it means to be secretive. This is the nature that Moses chooses to describe Satan. And all of the evil and brokenness that happens has the nature of Aram. So I want you to see what's happening in this beautiful poetic moment of Genesis 2 and 3. The last word, Aramin, the first word, Aram. Aramin, statement about who humanity is. Aram, statement about who the enemy is, what happens through the enemy's nature. And what do we see happen when Adam and Eve take of that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they weren't supposed to eat from? Two things happen straight away. First of all, they cover themselves because they realize that they're now naked, and when they were naked and unashamed, now they're naked and ashamed. And so they cover themselves. Then the second thing they do when God shows up in the garden is they hide from God. They're secretive from Him. They pull back from Him. They're afraid of Him. Whereas before, they were naked and unashamed with God because they were fully open and laid bare. Sin has now made them a rum. They are now closed. They are now hidden. They are now secretive. And all of us who struggle with sin, all of us who carry around the brokenness that we have in us because of sin, we are constantly battling between these two natures. And the enemy wants us to be secretive and hidden. One of the greatest works of the enemy is to convince us that actually the very thing that we've been created for the most is the kind of relationship now that we least are comfortable in. We don't want to expose ourselves, we don't want to be honest with people, we want to hold back, we want to be closed, we want to be hidden. We've become so much more Aram when we should have been Aramin. Are you following this sermon? Now, why is this all important? Moses, for the last two chapters of Exodus, has been trying to explain himself in the backdrop of Genesis 1 and 2. We've looked at a number of those examples over the last few weeks. But here's critical. Because Moses, in many ways, has lived out how we are as humans. He has struggled deeply with his identity and who he truly is. And in trying to live out of his identity, he does something wrong in murdering the Egyptian. And what does he do when he murders the Egyptian? He covers him up, he hides him, he buries him, thinking he can get away with a secret. But that secret is revealed, he's filled with fear, Pharaoh wants to kill him, he runs away to Midian. When he gets into Midian, he's hiding once again there. He doesn't tell anybody about the fact that he used to be groomed to become Pharaoh. He doesn't tell anybody about his Egyptian past. He even doesn't tell anybody about his Hebrew origins either. He hides from all of that he's embarrassed he's ashamed he's broken he's running for his life he's in fear he becomes more and more a rum than how he was created to be in aramin tracking with this and then god invades his ordinary with his extraordinary extraordinary And God places a burning bush just off of here to cause him to make a choice to turn and enter towards and walk towards that burning bush. And as he goes towards that burning bush, God says, okay, great, I see you. You're responding. You're drawing near. Now stop, because I need you to remove your sandals, because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. And does that mean I, I need to remove my impurities? Yes, it does. But it means so much more than that when you see it in the backdrop of what Moses has already explained in Genesis 1 and 2. When God calls him to remove his shoes, what God is really doing is saying, I want to commune with you again, like it was back in the garden. I want to now meet with humanity in a way that it was before. In other words, I want the flesh, the naked flesh of your foot, Moses, to stand on my spirit and commune with me. Are you with me, church? The burning bush is God's beautiful invitation to humanity to say, I want the purest form of you the most naked and vulnerable, the way you've been created to be, where you and I are in a relationship where you have nothing to hide, where you don't need to cover yourself with false identities anymore. You don't need to cover yourself from the shame of your sin. I'm going to meet you in such a way where we get to commune face to face, which is eventually what he will do with Moses. In this moment, it's flesh to spirit. It's saying a rum is not who you are. And if you're willing to remove your shoes... You can rediscover who you are. Isn't that so beautiful? Would you come, God is saying, and would you commune with me again? Can we be naked and unashamed together? And can we from there rediscover what it truly means to be human? This is the starting point of everything that changes for Moses. And in his obedience to go and have a look, in his obedience to remove his sandals, he stands onto the ground And he says this beautiful thing. He says to God, here I am. The Hebrew words mean I am in complete submission and in love. Here I am before you. And we don't take any step further in Exodus ourselves until we're willing to come naked and unashamed before God and say, yeah, there's brokenness. There's sin. There's stuff that I'm ashamed about. But I have a God who sustains by his grace. I have a God who calls from the burning bushes around my life. A God who pursues me and has not given up on me. And a God, when I turn to him, lays out the beautiful invitation to be able to deal with my shame through his embrace and his love and his holiness and his goodness. I'm not holy, he's holy. And in his welcome to become out men, As I take off my sandals and step to him, we can commune once again. It's really important you understand something. The burning bush was this incredible attraction for Moses. It was a thing God used to attract him out of his normal life and draw him towards it. The attraction was important, but it's really important that you see there was no power in the bush itself. God uses the bush to disrupt the everyday of Moses, but the bush itself wasn't powerful. What was powerful was the presence of God that was coming from the bush. Does that make sense to you? And the reality is, is that the vine church, and you need to hear this, the vine church is a burning bush. And every single person who's here and online right now, you're here because something's attracted you to be here. You've been drawn to something here in this community that's attracted you to be a part of this community. Maybe it's community. Maybe it's the friendships you've got here. Maybe that's what attracts you to come to our ministries on our Sunday. Maybe it's our worship. You, you love our worship and you love the musical worship and, and it's something for you and you enjoy it and you're attracted and you come for that. Maybe it's the preaching or the teaching that's drawn you in, that's attracted you as well. Whatever it might be, you need to understand this. There is no power in the thing that attracts And if all you ever do is come to the vine because you're attracted by something, but you never actually push beyond the thing that is attracting you to actually meet the God behind the thing that's attracting you, there'll be no power or transformation in your life. A church cannot change you. I'm going to say that again. A church cannot change you. Great music cannot change you. The only thing that will change and transform you and really start your journey of Exodus is the presence of Jesus Christ and his invitation to you to remove your sandals and step on holy ground with him. That's what will change you. And because there's that invitation, your invitation is not to stand and watch. It is to remove your sandals and commune. And as I close... Everybody's favorite words in every sermon. As I close, I want to invite you to reflect on the burning bush that is around you at the moment and the beauty that there is behind a God who welcomes you into this moment. And I want you just to quieten your heart. And this is what this whole message has been about, is this moment right here. I want you just to stable your heart, bring it before him, And just give you a chance to soak in some imagery and some words that we've created that I'm hoping will help to just minister to you much of what God's word is for you here this morning. We're going to watch this together. And then after that, uh, I'm going to come back and we're going to pray together. Thanks, Kingsley, for that. Let's watch this.
1: It starts in the fading of light the separation of presence and purpose in the distance between holiness and shame where we find ourselves humbled and hurting and where the sacred has become the profane we tremble in this hurt and shame and profanity and stumble between the shards of light For we desire to wonder in what is hidden and distant and wonder if in the darkness we could ever know the light and then when least expected, a spark. And what was ordinary comes alight with curiosity, and we are drawn forwards, tentative and tender, bruised from being buried, but burnt with new hope. And just there, right before us, crackling with longing and intent, the divine invades the common, and the sacred subverts the profane and a voice flickers into our brokenness like a flame dancing in the night, and we are welcomed into a new story that begins with a simple embrace. And when we see it, we can no longer look away, for there is now glory amongst the graceless, and the shards of light have become rivers of gold, and we are alive again, naked and unashamed, nothing now covering the rawness of our humanity from the restoring presence, of an intimate God. So let us remove, let us replace, let us repent, and let us recreate. May we see the bushes on fire around us and together step on holy ground.